Hello everyone, welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingari. I am so glad to have you join us today and for your continued support. I invite you to follow, subscribe, and share your views with me. My guest today is a current student in my Introduction to Public Health course. She relocated to the U.S. from South Sudan when she was a child with her family. As you know, South Sudan has endured years of civil war and she's definitely a true testament to resilience. I am so excited to have her as a guest, given the amazing work that she has done for the past eight years, working predominantly with UNICEF, which is the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund. She's worked in Communication for Development, C4D, Journalism, External Communications, and Behavior Change Communication. And she's done this in South Sudan for the most part of those eight years um, of her profession. It is commendable that she went back to South Sudan to give back to her community. Currently, she's pursuing a PhD in health communication, but she's also a mother of one. Her personal and professional experiences definitely support the extensive reach that public health has across various professions in our lives. For more information on her expertise, she can be found on LinkedIn. Please join me in welcoming Kujang Lucky to the show. We are so glad to have her. Thank you very much for having me. So looking at what you've done, eight years, and you have amassed a lot of, um, you know, experiences in various aspects of communication and development and health. So looking at how vast your experience is, could you tell us more about those distinct areas, why you are interested in them and how they interrelate? So I'll start with communication for development or C4D. What I really liked about this particular area is that it actually involves understanding people, you know, their beliefs and values, and more importantly, really looking at the social and cultural norms that shape their lives. And I say this because in most communities, when there is a public health crisis, they they know what the problems are. And in a way, they're able to also identify the assets, the community assets they have, as well as to best solve those problems. So that's what really interested me in that field. And then also, it's really a two-way process in the sense that you're able to work with these communities to share information and knowledge, and then it also empowers them as well, and that increases ownership. And then with journalism, obviously, that's all about being able to gather um, information and then present it through different mediums. This can be print, digital, broadcast, or even, you know, social media. And what I like about journalism, the strength there is that it's really able to highlight, you know, pertinent health issues and bring those forwards to agendas of those at the upstream level, you know, your key influencers and policymakers. So it has a huge advocacy component to it. And then I would say the last one, really behavior change communication, that's where it kind of harnesses the power of research. You know, you have your evidence-based um, uh, systems in place to understand, you know, what are the knowledges, attitudes, and practices in a particular community. 
And the last part of it is that it really draws on some of the theories that we talk about, like such as the social ecological model, because, you know, human behavior or health behavior, it requires us trying to understand, like, what are those spheres of influence that, you know, impacts a person's choices and the practices that they engage in. And I would say that the way that all of these intersect is that, you know, addressing health behavior, it's, it requires an inter, uh, interdisciplinary team or multidisciplinary teams. And behavior change, it's quite slow, and it's painstaking. And all of this is because individuals, um, their behaviors or their attitudes are really shaped by the social, cultural, economic and political context that you find them in. So in a way, you have to kind of draw on each of these areas and bring them together to really try to understand what's going on at the community level. That's great. Um, I'm glad you highlight the challenges of um, trying to have people adopt healthy behaviors. But I also appreciate that you, rec- you, know, you acknowledge the importance of change agents in the community and um, utilizing them to rally or get buy-in from our communities and also talking about the socio-ecological model. Um, it's not often that, you know, these models work well with what's going on in the real world. Um, but I think anytime that we can use a framework to sort of help us plan and assess and evaluate uh, is something that is an additional asset to the work that we do. Um, And think about those change agents. Could you just describe how your interaction with them um, was, knowing that you are uh, a citizen of this country in the U.S., you're also a citizen of South Sudan. How was it interacting with community members and change agents? So initially, my experience was challenging. I think that It probably took me a really, like about a few months to get my networks established because obviously I look the part, I look South Sudanese and so forth, but when I'm talking, they're like, who is this woman? You know, so it's, (laughs) it's quite fascinating just kind of looking at their reactions, Um, especially if I talk to someone on the phone and then they meet me in person. So one thing I did is, um, I really tried to integrate into the community by just using um, Arabic, Arabic Juba, Mm -hmm. just to kind of make sure that, you know, to show them that I am um, a member of the community as well. And I really do care about what's happening. And then also just kind of, you know, introduce myself um, as much as possible in the local language and then also dress um, the part. Because when you're in particular communities, you have to also be cognizant of how you're, you know, you carry yourself in your demeanor. And I think over time they got to understand that, you know, this person is here to just kind of facilitate and help us through some of these um, behavior change activities that we're trying to do. Wow, I can I can imagine I can relate um, the, the number of times I have gone back to do some work and it's sort of a reintroduction um, to the culture and to everything else and having to check yourself multiple times uh, so that you don't come off, you know, <laughs> different or arrogant or ignorant, you know. 
Um, and you brought up language, you know, and I, and I want us to talk a little bit about that. We know that COVID-19 has taken the world by a storm and we have all kinds of messages um, from different spheres and sectors trying to create awareness and motivate people to adopt preventive behaviors. And looking at the work that you've done, knowing just how um, vast the, the languages we have uh, back in Africa and in other countries, what does it take to produce culturally relevant communication materials? And what role does language play when we're developing these messages? I think that we have to really engage the community members or partners from the onset, you know, and then this eliminates any unintended consequences or ethical dilemmas. So, for example, one thing that we used to do, and usually when I say we, like, uh, that would include UNICEF, and then our partner agency was really WHO. They're the lead agency with health, and then with UNICEF, we're more so on nutrition and then communication. So we would pretest our materials, and then also we would work with the intended audiences to understand what is it that would reflect um, what it is about their community they want to be showcased. So if we're developing messages or even pictorials, we would have to pretest them. And then this would take place with maybe through a focus group discussion. Sometimes we had validation meetings um, or interviews with some key stakeholders. And all of this helps really to essentially standardize the messages because you want to have some kind of synergy and then also you want to eliminate duplication of efforts and wasting resources. Mm-hmm. So in regards to language, I, I think that language is quite sensitive. And in a way, it also presents a power dynamic because when you're using a certain language versus another, it communicates that, you know, this is for this particular community and not for another. So I usually try to not talk about language, but I think that language is political and it has a tremendous impact in the way that public health interventions are received at the community. So really to, to eliminate some of those challenges is just to make sure you're pretesting the information and then also making sure that it's relevant for that community. So for example, as a South Sudanese, we have over 60 languages. So what we would do is we would use the languages that are shared um, in different parts of the country because we have 10 states. And then even within that, let's say there's a language like Dinka, there's still three or four different variations. So we would have to send it to that particular region or have someone listen to it or several people listen to it. Um, like if it's a radio message or radio spot, and then they would have to tell us what's working and what's not working. So that's one way to really get around that for for us, um, from my experience. But I think just going back to kind of what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic, it is quite challenging because I think that also in developing culturally appropriate messages, we have to think about when we release the messages. So in a way, I think about the fact that there are all these different conflicting messages about usage of, let's say, masks. I think that because there was some delay initially from the CDC and WHO, that it kind of created um, some issues in terms of, you know, the mask has come to represent an infringement of like 
agency, freedom, and autonomy. So I think that we need to make sure that we're developing the messages and also releasing them at the right time so that there's not so much noise coming in from different areas. Indeed. And, um, you know, even in this country, we have people, it's a country of multilingual um, individuals. And, you know, it's something that we also have to consider when we are developing these messages. But something else that comes up with that is the literacy levels of the individuals that we are working with. Could you speak to that? So, for example, one thing just from my experience with literacy level, and this was quite common where we would have low literacy levels. So for us, when I was overseas, the the radio really had the biggest penetration. So mm-hmm. we would also use radio. And then a lot of people really enjoyed community theater because when you see the characters, you see our true reflection of society. And even if it's something that is quite touchy, a topic that's really tricky to talk about, if you do it through theater, it's kind of lighthearted and it still gets the point across. And then a lot of times we were also using pictorials Mm -hmm. um, to kind of convey the message because even if you're not able to necessarily read, you're still able to look at the pictorial and get the message from that as well. Wonderful. Um, so with your work with UNICEF, you had different roles. Um, could you just talk about those roles and uh, your experiences in those different roles? You know, were they, was there something different as a, you know, dealing with as, as a behavior change agent? Was there, is it, was it different when you had to go out and build networks, um, doing social mobilization, interpersonal communication? Um, could you just tell us how you went about engaging with those roles? So I would say that with communication for development, it really requires um, you to be able to establish partnerships. And I think that's really key. So just looking at it from that perspective, let's say I worked with um, religious leaders. One thing I realized quickly when I got to South Sudan is that Um, religious leaders are actually trusted sources of information. So I think that's key in any country that you work in. You want to know what are these trusted sources of information that people rely on. And with that, we would just do simple things like, um, for example, we would probably hold uh, an orientation session on a particular topic. Like, for example, if there's a cholera outbreak, Um, or a cholera response that's going on, we would provide them with key information and we would ask them or encourage them to have either some kind of messaging at the church during their Mm -hmm. sermon or maybe during an announcement. Um, And then with like interpersonal communication, a lot of times we realized that it was more effective to use community mobilizers. So -hmm. this is where we would provide some kind of training And it would be on interpersonal communication skills, how to talk to families about different behaviors. And they would actually go door to door. And this helped us a lot because you have some areas where it is media dark, where there's no media penetration. So at least with the the social mobilization networks in place, we would be able to reach different parts of the country that way. Wonderful. And I do appreciate that, um, you know, you had the involvement of religious leaders 
knowing how much culture and religion um, play a key role in influencing people's attitudes um, and everything that they do. So I, I appreciate how they were open um, to working with you all. Yeah, it took it took quite some mobilization on our part, but it's something that we quickly realized that this is what works. And even not only just with churches, we also worked with the uh, Islamic uh, Council in the country as well. Awesome. And how was that working with the uh, Islamic and the Christian Council, etc.? I think when you're working with such diverse groups, you have to consider what is important to them also, because you don't want to go in and just push agendas on them. Mm -hmm. You want to understand what is it that they can do and what are they willing to do? Because if you go in and you're telling them to do ABCD, they're more likely to be resistant. But mm -hmm. if you're really having a dialogue with them, then they can tell you this is what we can do or they can actually suggest things that you hadn't even thought of. Awesome. So good news that um, Sudan was declared polio free. Um, but then again, that good news turned into concerning news because there was a reemergence of polio outbreak. Are you aware of this recent update? And what do you think is going on? Yes, I am aware. And it's, it's quite devastating because I have been following what's happening um, back home. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is the polio-free declaration was for wild polio virus. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is um, currently there is a vaccine-derived uh, polio. I think out the outbreak that's happening is actually in Chad and then also Cameroon. So in South Sudan, a lot of the polio campaigns are using... Um, their oral, their oral polio drops. And what's happening with that is, in some cases, they replicate themselves in the intestines of children. Mm -hmm. And if you have now poor sanitation conditions, it further spreads in the country. And then also, just taking into effect, like the, the whole pandemic itself, it has mm -hmm. not been able to allow for the vaccine uh, campaign campaigns that typically would happen, they've been halted because of the coronavirus. So, yeah, it's really quite unfortunate what's happening. But those are some of the challenges with any health program. I concur. And um, when I was, you know, teaching and talking to my students about um, the impact that COVID-19 has had, uh, one of the key things that, you know, is slowly coming up is the successes we've had with communicable or infectious diseases is going to have such a negative impact. Um, COVID-19 is having a, such a negative impact on that right now because all, all most if not all funds um, have been diverted to address COVID-19 and rightfully so. But it's always a challenge of you know, do we have enough resources, especially in our resource-limited countries, in our underserved communities? What, how do we deal with this inadequacy in, in resources, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that also it's going to be a huge challenge because if we're thinking about these vaccination campaigns, 
they have halted them since the month of May and we're now in September. And if the pandemic, we don't know when the pandemic will end. So just I'm imagining that time that, you know, these areas have not been covered. And in order to be able to main, maintain some kind of um, vaccination status, we need to be able to vaccinate at least 90% of children that are under the age of five. Wow. Wow. So we do have our work cut out um, as public health professionals and even um, the, our clinical colleagues as well. Um, we'll see what happens in the next, uh, by the end of this year, we'll, we'll see how that, that happens. And speaking of and, you know, adverse effects and the importance of, you know, having sustainable interventions, um, we know that for health behavior change to happen, we have to have interventions that can last for a long time, right? And it's critical to have buy-in of policymakers for that to happen, um, of, of media and of civil society organizations. So what do we need to know about engaging those critical change agents? I think that they are quite essential just because, you know, in order to get buy-in, it helps us to mobilize those resources and also funding Mm -hmm. Um, in any particular country that we're working in. So, for example, even if we're looking at the COVID situation at the moment and the media, I think the media, they have a huge role to play because you have misinformation that's happening. You have myths, you have rumor management. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to engage all these different sectors in order to kind of address issues that are going on um, around the, you know, health behavior and to really make an impact. I think that we're not able to just do it with one agency or alone. We have to be able to work with all these key partners, whether it's policymakers, you know, media, and then also your civil society organizations. Indeed. And, you know, you talked about funding being, um, a really important issue in advancing the work that we're doing in public health and seeing that, you know, there's been a lot of funding cuts to the World Health Organization. Um, There was also some funding cuts to the UN. What do you think is going to happen in the near future if this pace of funding cuts continues? I'm just speechless. I think that some of the successes we have are quickly going to be impacted. And it's going to really be devastating for the field of public health because, you know, when when you're looking at public health, it affects everyone. So Mm -hmm. it's it's going to create a tremendous challenge, I think, for the field. Right. So just um, to wind down, um, you are currently pursuing a doctorate in health communication. What motivated you to go back to school? Um, So as I've mentioned, I come from a war-stricken country, and even though I've spent a majority of my life um, here in the United States, you know, I I look at South Sudan and I still want to be hopeful that I can Mm -hmm. make an impact. And it has, South Sudan has some of the worst health indicators in the world. And you see children dying from preventable diseases that could easily be averted. So I'm looking even at my experience with UNICEF, I think that it's really provided me with a clear view of like how imperative health communication is. And I've been in the field 
But I really want to make an impact through also health policy. I often wonder like who is sitting at that table, who's making those decisions and what can I do? What can I contribute? Because oftentimes I do get frustrated because I have a vested interest, I'm also passionate. So the last thing I think also growing up, I did not see many women like me in higher education from my country. So I'm like, you know what? Now that I'm here and there are these opportunities, let me try. Let me at least say that I tried. So I think that's part of the reason why I'm here. Indeed, and I definitely support that. Um, you know, we look back and you know the work we've done here in the U.S. We there's a lot of um, health disparities in this country. There is extensive health disparities um, in the resource limited countries as well. And so the field of public health has a lot to do, and it needs the buy-in of the community, but mostly the buy-in um, from policymakers because they're making those decisions that will impact our communities for a long time. Um, and, you know, those policies also influence how resources are distributed across our communities. So I kudos to you and, you know, we're here to support you. And if you need any help, advice, you know, we're here to <laughs> just push you on and, and, and help you achieve this goal and be able to go back and make a difference as much as you can. And what advice would you give a student who's this moment, you know, wondering, should, what, what do I do with my life right now with the upheaval of COVID-19? We've had students graduate, um, still looking for jobs or opportunities. What advice would you give them? So I guess the first thing, obviously, is just to take one day at a time. And I think that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm just trying to say, what can I do at this moment? What am I in charge of? What am I in control of? And in terms of jobs, um, I think that if there's something you're passionate about, still apply. And what I've seen in some cases is that some jobs are remote, are, are done remotely and they're home-based. So if you can kind of get into that uh, that kind of position where it is home-based. Um, I think that's one way to go about it. But I know in some cases that there's still opportunities. You just have to be willing to look for them and not be discouraged at the moment. But key thing is just to take it one step at a time. Awesome. And, you know, thinking of also other individuals who are working and some of them are discontent with their jobs and their uh, you know, grappling with the idea of maybe they should go back to school, um, but they're like, oh, um, you know, age is, 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 is a factor, or maybe their parents, they have families. What, what would you say? Because, you know, you, you're in school. Yeah, it's, it is quite doable. I actually have a four-year-old daughter, so mm -hmm. I am doing this as a mother, as a parent. It's mm -hmm. quite doable. I think if you have, um, going back to strong networks, if you have, you know, family and friends that are quite supportive spouses and so forth I think it can be done and you know you're never too old to learn it's quite exciting I initially I think that I had more of a communication background so now that I'm back I'm really leaning into the health side of things and it's really fascinating and a part of me is like I wonder if I should have just done public health so I think I think it's achievable. I think if you try, you put your mind towards anything, it's possible. And I think going back to just thinking about my life as um, 
as an immigrant in this country, one of the main reasons that we ended up in the United States was because of further studies. My father came over here. And one thing that he always tells me is that whenever you have any kind of acquired skills, you have some kind of document in your hand or paper, it shows you can do anything and you can move to any part of the world and live a decent life. And I think that that's why I'm so passionate about education, the endless possibilities that it offers to us. Wonderful. And I, I like how you said, given your background in journalism and communication, and you've done all this public health work, and you know, you are like, oh, I should have done public health. I think we engage with public health every day. You know, I think at some point, we are all doing public health, you know, because it's our daily lives and the decisions that we make. So uh, those distinct fields, you know, we may go into sociology or psychology or, you know, I don't know, chemistry or medicine, but all of us are engaging in public health one way or another. You know, it's just that we decide to pursue a degree to get more information about it. But I think I think we are all engaged in public health at every juncture of our lives, right? I totally agree. Just even getting up and thinking about, should I exercise today? And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Maybe I'll go later. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. And uh, so thank you so much for coming on and speaking and with me and sharing your experiences and the work that you're doing. And we definitely wish you the best as you pursue this um, PhD in health communication. And I look forward to touching base with you and seeing how things are going. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners. And uh, we look forward to having you come on and listen in on this interesting topics related to public health. Have a good one.